Well, good morning. Um, welcome to um, our first hour sessions. Um, we are in week three of 13 in our church history course seminars. And so um, I've got the pleasure of teaching this week. And uh, I've got a, um, a kind of a unique uh, topic to, to discuss in church history. Um, previously, we've talked about um, kind of more broader themes, but today we're really going to focus on a particular person and a particular lifetime of, of his. So um, last week we discussed the battle that the church faced with adoptionism, modalism, Arianism, and um, discussed the hypostatic union. And we saw how different councils were formed to combat um, different heresies and how um, they formed historic creeds that we hold to um, and that they sought to reaffirm the faith. We also saw how Christians went from a persecuted minority to holding a favored status in the Roman Empire. And so this week we're going to pick up in the late 4th century um, with the declining Roman Empire and observe what challenges were there that, that Christians faced and, and how they clarified um, and, and worked through those controversies. So particularly, um, this week we're, we're going to be discussing um, a North African bishop whose name was Augustine and, and how his work helped to clarify and defend the gospel in the face of the opposition and then how his contributions shaped Western Christianity for years to come. Augustine is a, is a really interesting person in his life because he um, not only is a, an important piece of the Catholic Church, but also a very important piece of the Protestant Church. And so in church history, as we're um, you know, having this Catholic universal church um, moving in, 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 in time, he's just in a very pivotal place and, and holds a very important part of church history. So um, as we start, I want to remind us that even in the middle of the summer of 2023, in the middle of a church course seminar, church history, um, God can still speak and um, he can still deepen your faith. And so, you know, my prayer is that that would be the case today, that you would have your faith deepened. God called Augustine in the middle of a garden um, by the voice of from children. And so... It can happen here, and that can happen here today. So I just pray that, that he will deepen your faith today. Um, there's a couple of, of just kind of goals. I want to go over those. First, I want to help us understand how Christians were viewed um, in that declining late Roman Empire. I want to kind of summarize three of Augustine's major works, which are Confessions, the Trinity, the City of God. And then I want to kind of really talk about and spend some time digging into some controversies that he faced. Um, and, and especially talking about and understanding his engagement with Pelagianism. When we discussed in week one, we discussed that bishops, um, they arose relatively early in the Christian church, um, mostly by being pastors of a congregation um, in some type of influential city. As doctrinal disputes kind of arose, those bishops um, helped to clarify and, and looked over the churches to help define the doctrine and practice. Um, they were really meant to define doctrine carefully, um, and through their correspondence with other bishops and church leaders, they helped the congregation think through the challenges um, and helped them begin to um, re <clears throat> really solidify um, core church doctrine. Um, as we noted previously, um, setting, settling matters of orthodoxy in the church, um, it didn't really come easy. Um, some churches, you know, uh, had to have... A, times where bishops were to gather and debate core doctrine, um, and, and bishops helped to 
um, guide and, and, and solidify a core doctrine in the church. You may recall um, we previously discussed Arius and Eusebius of Nicomedia. And at times, um, this, sometimes this led to different feuds between different bishops in different jurisdictions. But bishops had um, sometimes often outsized their particular uh, geographic regions. And, and we saw that with Arius' work with Eusebius of Nicomedia in, in Constantinople and in Athens, in um, his influences and whenever he was in exile. Now one major problem um, that started to kind of cause issue amongst those unified churches um, was the fact that um, in, the, in the East, um, they spoke Greek and they wrote in Greek. And in the West, they were still Latin. Um, and so they, they, there were some, some difference, differences there and that caused some issues. Uh, many of the major ecumenical councils, debates, and subsequent confessions, they were had and written in Greek. Um, the Cappadonian, Cappadonian fathers, um, Basil of Caesarea, Gregory of Nazanus, and then Gregory of Nyssa, they all wrote in Greek. So for the first few centuries, anyway, uh, it's safe to say that although the language of the empire was Latin, the majority um, of the theologians were, were producing works that were in Greek. And so it's, it's worth noting that, as, as it helps explain some, but not all of, of the issues, but there's differences between the East and the West. Um, and that's how some of those feuds came about. Um, and, that, and that kind of further weakened the Roman Empire. Um, but those Christian churches really trusted those bishops to help clarify and, and guide them through those complicated theological issues. and. Um, We'll see some of that today. In the, in the late Roman Empire, uh, there was a, there's a lot of really tumultuous events that occurred. In the second through the fifth centuries, the empire would change hands many times. There's um, times where there were a tetrarchy. There were times when there were just regular uh, emperors um, that were just like one, one person reigning. Um, who exercised that control over the entire empire. And we saw that whenever we talked about Constantine and Theodosius, who came after him. Um, and like we discussed in week one, the unity in the empire uh, really um, often meant that ecumenical councils um, could be summoned to clarify that Christian, Christian belief. At times, those councils um, would help be helpful and would affirm the orthodoxy. Other times, councils would convene without the express authority of the emperor and, um, and other recognized bishops. However these matters of the churches and state were handled, one thing is clear. Um, by the fifth century, Rome, Rome was just a, a shadow of her, her former self. Um, it, it, Rome itself was not the same as it previously had been. Um, Valentinus IV in the fourth century sought to restore the city of Rome to her former glory by means of pagan revival. They, they thought that if they could just get back to the founding ideas that made them great, perhaps then they could gain the prestige that they desired. But uh, by the 5th century, it was clear that that division and the feuds over the emperor's purple amidst the ruling class had significantly weakened the Roman Empire. Um, Theodosius um, made Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire um, through the Edict of Thessalonica in 380 AD. So that's some, an important a date to write down um, <clears throat> as, we, as we're moving through here. Although it was granted favor status by the Roman emperor and his council, it didn't mean that Christian belief was actually um, favorable in all corners of the empire. Amidst Rome's decline and fall, Roman citizens and rulers grappled um, with the different explanations for their demise. 
One um, that gained some support in the fifth century was that the Christians were to blame. They thought, uh, because we left all of our pagan gods and we have followed after um, the one true God, um, it's weakened the empire. <laughs> they, they thought that God's, the gods of Rome were punishing the Roman citizens for abandoning them. Um, whatever the cause, the explana and, and whatever explanation was needed, um, you know, they, they were trying to figure out what caused this great empire to falter, what caused the cities to deteriorate, um, and how was it that um, it could be overcome um, by some, some vandals from the, the northeast. So they, they um, had questions and they just kind of wanted answers and they blamed Christians. Because in, in 410, um, that was a really key date. Uh, it's debatable exactly the exact date, but um, in 410, uh, the, the city of Rome itself fell. And that was a huge, a huge um, piece of time where um, barba barbarian Visigoths, um, kind of from kind of Germanic uh, Romanian area, um, were kind of pushed to the to the west by the Huns, and they came over the Danube and then came into um, Rome, and they captured Rome. And this once great seat of so much power now lies in the hands of invaders, and and there was so much um, of Rome that was still intact, but capturing that major city was very symbolic. And, and the city of Rome, when it was in barbarian hands, they thought, like, if it could happen to Rome, I mean, like, what's going to happen to the rest of us? It's, it's kind of like the big place. Um, and that kind of brings us to um, our discussion of Augustine, because um, when, when Rome was sieged, many residents fled to North Africa, and um, whenever they did, they came under the... They came under the um, seat of a very prominent bishop there. And so we're going to talk now um, really about, it's kind of like setting the stage for, for where we are with Augustine and, and, and what um, has happened to get us to where we are. So there's not really any ancient Christian writer who's left a larger corpus or, or collective writings than Augustine. He's, I mean, and he, he was, you know, born in, in 354 AD. So we're talking 1,600 years ago, so, but he's one of the most prolific and left the biggest amount of writings. Um, and, and perhaps his best known work is, is Confessions. And by the time of Rome's fall, Augustine um, was a man of consequence in the Roman world. So as we focus here on Augustine, we're going to spend a few minutes kind of diving into his personal history, because um, I really believe that like, like a really good, firm foundation um, for how his life progressed and why, because um, he's such a, he's a very very broad thinker, and and the I think we need to talk a little bit about of, of why the things that have happened in his life have brought him to where he is in his mind. Because um, as we'll see, we'll talk a little bit later about a quote that he talks about the mind and, and um, pushing the mind towards the love of God. So Augustine was born to a Christian mother and a pagan father, and it's really interesting because um, if you're a mother in here, I want to encourage you. Um, sometimes in the course of your life, you, you can't control um, all things with your children, especially after they leave your home. And uh, Augustine's mother was a very, very influential person in his life, even after um, he spent 30 years squandering his life away. And, and her prayers and her persistent pursuit of him was very important. So I would encourage you this morning 
um, no matter what you face with your children, continue to be um, before the Lord for them. So he was born um, in 354 in a city in North Africa. It's modern-day Algeria, um, just on the, the southern coast of the Mediterranean Sea. And we learn from his confessions that his mother Monica had really earnestly desired his conversion from an early age, while his father, um, Patricus, really wanted his son to be a learner and really well-informed and wanted him to um, be astute in the academic world. And so um, they pushed him for academic excellence and to make him elite academically. And so he was able to, um, go, to go to school. And from a very early time, um, they, they found that Augustine was very bright and, and had a, um, just an inclination to be able to orate and to read and write and, and to speak. But despite his mother's godly example of influence for the first 30 years of his life, Augustine ran from God and pursued the pagan dream. Um, as his father desired, he studied that rhetoric and philosophy at Carthage in 371. And as he pressed further into his studies, he began to self-consciously walk away from Christianity, citing apparent contradictions um, in the Gospels that he saw and they perceived to be confusion of what he considered the origin of evil. And what we'll talk about and have an understanding of is that it, a lot of his explanation on the origin of evil is really dealing with his internal conflict with his own personal sin. Um, in 372, he, he took a concubine and had a son, um, a Deodatus, um, by her. And, and as a side note, we'll never, we never actually learn her name um, in all of his writings. It's never recorded um, what her name was, but he spent upwards of 15 years of his life next to her side. Um, he studied rhetoric with eagerness and pleasure, but his true motives were truly vanity and ambition. And to these he joined um, loose living. He sought a philosophical way to explain, or at least to be able to live with his uncomfortable experience of knowing that he wanted truth, but also sensual pleasure as well. Um, and both of them simultaneously. This is part of the so-called problem of evil that he saw in the world. And, and with this kind of particular quandary in mind, um, he thought that there might be some kind of solution offered by a group of people um, called the, the Manchaeist. So Manchaeism um, is kind of the first thing that we're going to discuss as far as something that he reached out to. Um, from 373 to 382, um, he was influenced by this Manchaeism which is a dualistic religion that associated sin with the body, um, kind of that pleasure, and then purity with the soul. And so there was like this dual reality here of, of I've got a, a pure soul, but I've got this sinful material, material flesh, and, and they're at war. And so he, he, he kind of dug in there because he saw that in himself. And so um, he viewed sin as a necessary consequence of the soul's enfleshment. Additionally, um, Manchaeism also disputed the idea that God would directly work in the world. It emphasized some kind of cosmic battle between good of the spirit and evil and matter. You kind of, so you can kind of see how that belief kind of gave justification, at least in his mind, to the struggles that he, he faced. Throughout his worldly pursuits, Augustine's mother pleads um, with the Lord to save him. So don't, don't forget that as we're, we're moving here. Uh, Augustine remained in Carthage from his 17th birthday, um, when his father passed away and whenever he had his son to his 28th year 
first as a student and then from about 374 onwards as a teacher. And he spent seven years in Carthage um, and kind of matured as a teacher. One of his uh, students, his name was Alypius, and he became his friend for the rest of his life. Several of his former friends um, from, from his, his teaching, his students, they actually wrote to him and said, hey, look, we're in Rome, and, and we think that you should come to Rome to teach. And so they kind of enticed him with um, status and more pay and more money, and the students would be better. And so he was like, you know what? Better students, more money, sounds like a good deal. So I'm going to take off to Rome because the, it's the big place. Let's go find out what's, what's going on over there. Um, and so he, he sailed for Rome to become a teacher of rhetoric in 383. Um, only one year later, after he was there, he was actually appointed um, as a professor of rhetoric in Milan. And, and so that's not quite Rome, but um, part of his influence by key people who were Manchaeists kind of set him up for that position in Milan. And so they um, got him over there. Basically, there was a guy who was in charge, and he's, he didn't want a Christian to run that school. And so he brought him in because he was a Manchaeist and wasn't necessarily a Christian. Um, the ironic thing is that the, the guy who brought um, Augustine in was actually, I believe it was the cousin of a guy named Ambrose, who we're about to find out about, who really changed the course of um, Augustine's life. And so you can see just the way the, the Lord works in, in, in all things, even in people who don't necessarily want um, to have anything to do with God. Um, so, let me see where I'm at. Um, so let's, let's talk about Ambrose. So in Milan, he encounters this guy named Ambrose. He's the bishop of Milan. Um, he's a really well-known preacher. He's unique. He's gifted. He's unafraid of powerful people. As you can see, he's got uh, you know, really strong Christian beliefs, but his you know, family members are people who don't want Christians um, involved in um, education. And so he's just kind of this unapologetic preacher, bishop, um, and, and he is now um, got this guy named Augustine who's coming to hear him speak. Um, Augustine went on the pretense of just listening to an orator. He went to hear um, someone who was prominent, who was um, well-known to speak, and um, God used this, this man, Ambrose, to really change the course of Augustine's life. Um, I think in, in, it says in, in Confessions, he actually wrote this, these words. He says, To Milan I came, but actually to Ambrose. To him I was led by you, Lord, that by him I might knowingly be led to you. That man of God received me as a father. I hung on his words attentively. And so without hindsight, Augustine sees, uh, without hindsight, Augustine sees the Lord's providence and actually why he brought him there. Um, his intentions were completely for the wrong thing, but God um, had a different plan. So in the spring of 385, Monica, um, Augustine's mother, um, came to Milan to actually help arrange a marriage because the thinking was, um, if he's going to be a prominent teacher um, and he's going to um, have a lot of influence, he can't have a concubine and an illegitimate son. So we got to get him married to someone in the Catholic Church. And so he's been by this person's side for 15 years, and um, he, he talks about how painful it is later. But 
um, he, he puts her off. He, he puts her off and marries um, another, another person. Um, so really, it was really just like an act of, of social conformity for him. Um, and, and, um, but uh, there, was also, there was also a piece that I read that really talked about um, Augustine was, he was, he was either all in or he wasn't. And he, part of it really put on that he really did believe. And the reason that he was able to do what he did um, was for the fact that he had something happen to him. A change happened in him. And we're going to talk about that change. And whenever he, he heard the call of the Lord, um, he said, you know, I'm going to go after this wholeheartedly. And I can't, um, I can't do this. I can't, I can't do it in this manner. And so let's talk about um, that, that conversion. In Confessions, um, Augustine writes, Suddenly I heard the voice of a boy or a girl, I know not which, coming from the neighboring house, chanting over and over again, Pick it up, read it, pick it up, read it. And so I quickly returned to the bench where I was sitting, for there I'd put the apostle's book when I had left. I snatched it up, opened it up, and in the silence read the paragraph on which my eyes first fell. Not in rioting or drunkenness, not in eroticism and indecency, not in strife and envying, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill the lusts thereof. He notes, I wanted to read no further, nor did I need to. For instantly, as the sentence ended, there was infused in my heart something like the light of full certainty, and all the gloom of doubt vanished away. I think that's noted in your, in your handout. Um, for him, it was instantaneous. There was this change that happened in his heart. In, in April of 387, Augustine was baptized along with his son, Aodatus and Olypius. And not long after his conversion, Augustine resigned his post in Milan and pursued a life of kind of cultured retirement or monastic retreat, a common practice among the time of Augustine, and like many monks before him, he idealized quiet and creative leisure as a means to be devoted to serious pursuits. 